Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, this is Deb Hunter with All Things Tudor, and today I am very happy to welcome our special guest, Dan Jones. Dan is a New York Times bestselling author of Crusaders, the Templars, the Plantagenets, Wars of the Roses, and Magna Carta. He is a historian, broadcaster, and award-winning journalist. His books have sold more than one million copies worldwide. He has written and hosted dozens of TV shows, including the acclaimed Netflix series, Secrets of Great British Castles. Welcome to All Things Tudor, Dan. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Deb. Nice to talk to you. Well, you too. Thanks so much. I have just a a few questions, if you don't mind. I'd like to know a little bit more about you. You're a rock star in America. (laughs) I guess you know that. I didn't know that. What do you think is the key to your popularity? I wouldn't presume to know the key to uh, my popularity. I'll tell you the, the important things that I do when I work. And that's to focus pretty tightly on storytelling, on identifying exciting stories, telling them in a a clear narrative format that that gives readers or viewers a similar sensation to if they were reading uh, an exciting thriller, a novel, uh, watching a movie. You know, I take a lot of um, inspiration and technical structure into history writing from screenwriting. And that's not to say that any of my books are invented, but the, the underpinning structure to the, to the storytelling is largely imported from the screen. And I think that I did that, I started doing that quite deliberately a very long time ago, right near the start of my writing career, because I just felt that there are all these wonderful stories in history that that sometimes aren't told in a way that people can can access with their imagination very easily, and that uh, that a, a sort of a more deeply thought about approach to storytelling uh, might benefit um, history and might get people who might not ordinarily be into history to give this subject a go. What got you into the Plantagenets? We know that leads into the Tudors, but what led you to that era of history? Well, when I was at university, when I was an undergraduate at university, so we're now at the the very end of the 20th century, 1999, I went up to Cambridge. 2002, I graduated with my undergraduate degree. Uh, I mostly focused on medieval history. Now, the reasons for doing that were not particularly well thought through. The way the Cambridge Tripos, which is the name for the undergraduate degree at Cambridge, worked was that you get to choose more or less what you study. And in my at the beginning of my first year, pretty much like closing my eyes and, and stabbing a pin onto, onto the course list, I just chose medieval. And I was very fortunate to be taught medieval history from my very first term at Cambridge, October 
Michaelmas term, beginning October 1999, I was taught by Helen Castor. And I'm sure many of your listeners, Deb, will have, have read Helen Castor's books, will have seen her television program. She's a, she was a, 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 she is a brilliant, brilliant medieval historian and inspired me from a very early point in my, uh, in my life. You know, as a young ad, I was 18 years old to get excited about the stories of the Plantagenets because the first paper we studied together started with King John and Magna Carta and worked its way all the way up to the Wars of the Roses and the advent of the Tudors. And so I studied a lot more medieval history throughout my undergraduate career. I also studied Tudor history. I worked with David Starkey doing Tudor histories, and that was very exciting as well. Helped me put uh, the pre- and post-1485 world together by studying both of those subjects. And, you know, I just, I'm stuck in my ways, I suppose. I like the Middle Ages. Uh, I found that when I started writing professionally, there weren't many other historians working for a popular market on the Middle Ages. And I've just, I just kind of plowed that furrow for nearly 20 years now. So you started studying history and what made you decide to start writing these great books that you produce, these great stories? I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, to be perfectly honest with you. I ended up specializing in, again, at the end of my undergraduate degree. Uh, so we're now spring, summer 2002. I was doing medieval legal history, pretty technical, late medieval legal history in England. So very specific, quite technical, very interesting. But there were only five or six people in the whole of the university who studied this. And the career trajectory tended to be that if you were that interested in the origins of the English common law, you're a good candidate to go and convert from history to law. And indeed, most people who took that course went off, uh, went to law school, became barristers, attorneys. I did not do that. Uh, I, I graduated from university. I sort of put off making a decision for a year. I got the forms to fill in from law school. I decided I didn't like paperwork. And that's a pretty good way to discount yourself from being a lawyer. And I bumbled around for another year. I took a journalism degree. I dropped out of that. I was doing some tutoring. And eventually, I ran into a writer who's, uh, whose work, again, I'm sure your readers are familiar with, Leander Delisle. I met Leander Delisle probably in 2004. I was tutoring her children. And I was moaning one evening about how I didn't know what I wanted to do. And Leander said to me, oh, for God's sake, why don't you write a book? <laughs> so I said, okay, sounds, sounds I could do that. Uh, and so I wrote an outline for a book, and that was my book on the Peasants' Revolt. I mean, all of this sounds hopelessly amateurish, I realize, and like just the kind of rogues or rakes progress. And to a degree, recounting it now. I understand that that's, that's how it must come across. But my, I, I just had a pretty – I wasn't bothered by it at, at any stage. I just had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was just, I tried out a whole bunch of things. And eventually I found one that I liked. I'm still doing it. Well, we're so glad you are. Um, out of everything you've written, do you have a personal favorite or is it like children? You love them all. Oh, I have a personal favorite among my children. It's just the one that's annoying me least on any given day. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I'm like Henry II. I prefer King John. Uh, it's not necessarily the best one, but I like him better. Now, listen. I tend to like the one I've most recently written, and in my case, that's a book called Powers and Thrones, which is this big survey of the Middle Ages, a new history of the Middle Ages. It came out in the US in November just now. It came out in the UK slightly earlier in the autumn. That's my 10th book, and it was um, really a sort of a turning point. Well, not a turning point, but the end of 
a period of work for me. You know, I've, I turned 40 this year. I've, I wrote my 10th book. It was a, this big history of the whole of the Middle Ages. And, and I put a lot into writing that book. So at the moment, that's my favorite. But I, when, when I look back over the whole sweep of them, the one that, I mean, Templars was very popular. Plantagenets is very popular. But with Wars of the Roses, which in the UK is called The Hollow Crown, in the US is called Wars of the Roses, I, I have a very soft spot for that book. It's The Wars of the Roses and The Rise of the Tudors. And it does that thing of linking up the me- medieval and the Tudor world. But it's also the book that as a writer, I first came to really, I would say, understand what I was trying to do, or at least understand how to do what I was trying to do, which is to say... I got a, a, a firm grasp of narrative architecture, of book structure, and a confidence that I could do it. The first book, I wrote a book about the Peasants' Revolt. I just, I, it was just an achievement to get to the end of telling the story. Plantagenets, I wrote it like a medieval chronicle. I just write and write and write and write and write. And then at the end, I divvied it up into this seven-part structure, which when I look back at it, it's super weird. Hollow Crown, I knew before I even put, wrote the first word, I knew how it started. I knew how it ended. I knew the shapes. I knew the chapter structure. I knew that book inside out before I even started. And then and I un- understood story architecture. And everything I learned writing that book, or had learned and put into writing that book, has underpinned everything I've done ever since. So I'm very fond of that book for, for lots of reasons. And you definitely should be. They're, they're all great books, by the way. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. I do want to talk about your ladies too. In the last few weeks in America, you've had two releases, The Tale of the Tailor and the Three Kings and The Powers and Thrones that you just mentioned. Would you like to tell us more about those, please? Well, uh, yes. I mean, Powers and Thrones, it's, it's my biggest book and my littlest book. So Powers and Thrones is a, a really big survey of the whole of the Middle Ages. And it starts with the sack of Rome of 410, collapse of the Western Roman Empire, and it proceeds to the sack of Rome of 1527, you know, the the uh, the dawn of the modern world. Now, b- between the sack of Rome 410 and the sack of Rome 1527, I explore the whole sweep of the medieval world in, in concentrating, because the term medieval is quite specific to uh, Europe, the Mediterranean world, the Near East, concentrating on Eurasia, but spanning everywhere from the Americas to Korea in its geographical scope taking in 1,100 years of history, telling some of the – it's the greatest hits of the Middle Ages. It was an enormous work of, of complex storytelling and also just joy of, of relating these interwoven stories from the Middle Ages, which I've been telling in some form or another for all my career. So that's Powers and Thrones. It's a book I'm immensely um, proud of and, and relieved to have managed to, to write because it was not easy. The Tale of the Tailor and Three Dead Kings is a different matter altogether. The Tale of the Tailor and Three Dead Kings is a modern retelling of a very obscure early 15th century 
ghost story, ostensibly a true story written down by an unknown monk from a monastery called Byland Abbey in North Yorkshire, Northern England, around the year 1400. It, it appears to be a story that was told by somebody, person unknown, to this monk. And the monk wrote it down about events that were believed to have happened. And it, it involves a, uh, a tailor, as the title suggests. The tailor is called Snowball. Snowball is riding home from work one night, and he's accosted by a ghost, a ghost that can shapeshift and take many forms. And the ghost haunts him and insists that he helps the ghost to escape from limbo, in which he's been stuck for some time, although not a long time in, uh, as limbo goes, because Snowball knows who this person, this person was in life. Well, then we follow Snowball on his quest to help the ghost, which he does in the end, but with, with ambiguous consequences for them both. It doesn't follow very neat story shape, as we might uh, expect. It is weird. It is quite wonderful. It's one of actually 12 Byland Abbey ghost stories, but it's the, the one I felt was most adaptable to a modern, into modern English and for a modern audience. I wrote it on Halloween in one sitting, in ha on Halloween 2020, for my children, because it was locked down then in the UK, and trick-or-treating was illegal, and so I, uh, you know, I was trying to entertain them, not very successfully. It must be said, but uh, we published the book, and it's 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 fun. It's just a bit of fun. It's a ghost story. Everyone likes ghost stories. Well, some people hate them, but a lot of people like ghost stories. And if you like ghost stories, you might like this ghost story. Definitely. How long? You said you wrote it in one day. How long did it take you to research it? Oh, no time at all. Yeah, the whole process was complete in in a day. So oh, let me talk you through the process. It's Halloween. I say to my children, "Hey, did you know there's medieval ghost stories?" They say, "Yeah, not really sure we care." Uh, I say, no, 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 no. You have to understand there are medieval ghost stories. And they're like, oh, God. So then I, I go off and frantically use a bunch of library catalogues to research medieval ghost stories. I'm, I, I was looking for something else. I wasn't looking for the Bile Abbey ghost stories. I was looking for, actually, as I remembered later, William of Newborough's story of the Revenant. But put that aside. I came across the Bile Abbey ghost stories in two forms. One transcribed from the original document by the very famous 1920s English ghost story writer and medievalist M.R. James uh, in an academic journal from 1922. And then subsequently, I found them translated into modern English, but directly translated by a scholar called A.J. Grant in the Yorkshire Archaeological Review, I think, or Digest, I can't remember what it's called, from 1924. And so the research was finding the ghost stories. I read a, I read a little about them. There's a little bit of scholarly work on them, but not. A, I mean, I, I read it all in an hour or so, and I thought, oh, this will be fun. So I sat down and wrote it, and it's six thousand words. And by the end of the evening, it was done. I mean, okay, look, the next day I polished it up a little, tiny bit. So maybe I'm exaggerating to say the work was complete in one day, but it's, effectively it was written in one day. And I did that while writing Powers and Thrones, which is a book that took sort of two and a half years. And so the Ability to just sort of stand back, completely shift, write a short story, was very helpful in the in the longer term of writing Powers and Thrones. It just gave me a mental break, if it, only for a day. And then I got back to the big job. So Powers and Thrones took two and a half years to research. Well, in a sense, Powers and Thrones took twenty years to research because it's the uh, it's the accumulation of everything I've been studying since I was a teenager. The active work on Powers and Thrones, I guess, I began in the summer of. 2019 and i was yeah that's right summer of 2019 i took the first trip i went to rome because my plan had been i was going to go to a different 
important medieval location or city for each chapter. There's 16 chapters. And I began summer 2019, paused a little to launch Crusaders, the autumn of 2019. In January 2020, I went to Ravenna. That's right. And then in March 2020, I was planning to go to Istanbul. It must have been. That's when COVID happened and all the, all the travel stopped. So from that, then for the next nine months, I, I was just right. Yeah, so actually it's more like two years rather than two and a half years of active work on the book. But because I was stuck at home writing this story, I, it was a much more intensive research period and one that by its nature drew much more heavily on work I'd done before. Than it wasn't, it wasn't a, a quite a normal way of researching and writing a book. I'm all ears. I love this. I love hearing about research. I'm very fortunate in that by the time I came to write this book, it was possible. I mean, your listeners can only hear me. You can partially see me. I'm sitting in a room lined on two sides, floor to ceiling with bookshelves, and each shelf is double or triple stacked with books. And that's my library I've accumulated over the years. And it's a pretty good working, pretty good working library. It looks a lot like paradise, to be honest about it. <laughs> well, it, uh, it depends what, when you get me in it, because when I've just tidied it up, it's it's picturesque and it's, you know, my, if my everything's clear. I mean, I'm, I, I have to say, I'm pretty a pretty clear desk worker. I don't I don't work in total squalor or utter dishevelment. But if you get me mid book, there will be piles of books everywhere, and you know, I've got the desk where I have. You know, there's usually a a pile on each, a pile of papers on one side, a pile of books on the other side. My laptop in the middle. I've got another table beside me that's got the sort of books for the chapter I'm working on. I've got another table next to that, which is just where I put books I've got to take back to the library. I've got another shelf next to that where there's every everything that I've been working on in the book. So th- there's a system I understand, but it can look quite uh, unattractive while I'm mid working. Uh, so at that point, it's not that nice a place to come into, partly because it's untidy and partly because I'm tetchy about anything being moved. It looks perfect. Is that the room you do your Friday afternoon talks in? It's a room I do pretty much everything in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is at the moment. Beyond cleaning and relieving myself, I'm currently living in it because I've, uh, I'm a bit poorly at the moment. So, um, yeah, this is this is my natural habitat. It's the Dandian. Yeah. It's a big hit in all things Tudor. We have something we call Before the Tudors, which is where you come in, and your Friday chats are huge in the group. So um, Are they really? I find that quite astonishing because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very low-rent entertainment, and <laughs> uh, it, it's really completely non-historical, and I don't – in fact, it's deliberately non-historical. It's uh, the only point. The only thing that ever really is historical about it is the fact that I'm doing it. Otherwise, it's just as you know. I once watched an interview with Larry David where he was trying to. Uh, he was talking about the the genesis of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he was talking about where they got the music. I don't know if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO, but the music for Curb Your Enthusiasm goes dun 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 da 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 da. And it's it's a kind of weird little theme tune. And he, he, he said it was once used on a bank advert. And he said its purpose is only this. It's only to prepare the viewer for the fact that they're about to see something that, in his words, is pretty idiotic. And pretty idiotic <laughs> is how I would describe 
my Friday afternoon activity on Facebook. It's it's not high highbrow. <laughs> that seems to suit us just fine. So so then I guess your popularity then could either be your movie star good looks, your personality, oh, you. your sex appeal, your writing ability, or a combination of all these things. I I, I mean, carry on, <laughs> carry on. Seems like you're just scratching the surface. <laughs> <laughs> you know, headlines, right? <laughs> let's get let's get down to the real stuff. Yeah, that's just a start. <laughs> Enough small talk. <laughs> so back to powers and thrones. What's a few yeah. things you learned? You said you'd been writing it or researching it for twenty years. What are a few things you learned from that one book that you did not know before you started writing it? I, w- I would say that um, the distribution of stuff I didn't know to stuff I did know in Powers and Thrones is loaded about 80% towards the front of the book, which is to say it opens with a chapter about the Romans, goes into one about the barbarian migrations into the Roman Empire, then does Byzantium, then does the Arab conquests, and then the fifth chapter of the Franks. Now, when I started the book, I'd just finished recording a TV show about Britain's Roman roads, which would be a good grounding in Roman history and archaeology. That chapter I, I, I felt pretty confident about writing. But the next three three and a half i i was uh i was a, a novice i'd call on a lot of help from a lot of scholarly friends who know a lot more about this stuff than i do which wouldn't be hard because i knew nothing so i would say that the early middle ages was that was the the real learning bit for me but it was great because it, it helped put all the later middle ages which i knew a lot more about into context well let me ask you one more question this is the million dollar question if there was Tinder in the Plantagenet era, who would be the most popular in the Plantagenet court? Mm. Who's the most popular, male or female? Your choice. I suppose. I think I, I'm gonna. Eleanor of Aquitaine gets gets mad love, doesn't she? Absolutely. She's she's super hot history wise. I think she's uh, she's going to get a lot of swipes in whichever direction is the good direction. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a user. Uh, male, who's who's hot stuff? You know, I I'd, uh, I would say early career Edward the Third, pretty good. You know, he he became king the the right or early career Edward the Fourth before he got fat and gross. Do you know what I mean? Good good points. Good choices. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today and invite you back at another time. The members have questions they want me to ask you. So sometime when you have 30 minutes, 20 minutes, just give me a buzz and we'll just do a quick run through if you'd like. And again, I appreciate you joining us on All Things Tudor. Sure thing, Deb. Take care of yourself. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.